Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 17th. It's lunchtime on the West Coast of the United States in San Francisco. We're back talking economics and particularly the price of money or perhaps the price of time. Last week, I um, had a conversation with a financial thinker on the East Coast of the US, Richard Vague, who believes in the idea of a debt jubilee. He suggests that it's in everyone's interest if we forgive debt and perhaps do away with interest. Earlier this week, I talked to Peter Coy, who's an economics writer at the New York Times about this. He was ambivalent, although like many economists, he seemed to be ambivalent about everything. For Coy, there was always on the one hand, on the other. Certainly, though, the price of money uh, is a hot issue and an important issue, not just for economists, but for politicians. Um, I've had Christopher Leonard a couple of times on the show recently. He's a very articulate financial journalist and very critical of quantitative easing, of the price of what he calls easy money in the United States. He sees it as the root of many of our political and economic and cultural problems of the last decade. Um, my guest today, Edward Chancellor, I think, and I don't want to um, label him before he gets to talk for himself, but Edward Chancellor, who's another very distinguished financial historian and economist, has a new book out, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. And like Christopher Leonard, he is, I think, a critic of quantitative easing uh, and the low price of money. Edward Chancellor is joining us from his home in Somerset. His book, The Price of Time, is just out this week in the United States, edited by my old friend uh, Morgan uh, Entrican at Atlanta, Grove Atlantic. It's already out in the UK. Edward, welcome. Peace be with you. Edward, um, I'm sure you're familiar with with the work of Christopher Leonard, uh, his book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Um, do you think he's right? Do you think that money has been too easy over the last uh, 15 years since the financial crisis of 2008? Um, well, I, I hate to say that I, I actually haven't seen that book. I, I noticed with my book coming out that someone, someone seemed to have written a book on, on a relatively similar theme. And yeah, my, my book, you know, I'm sure he takes a different approach. My, my, my book is a history of interest from the Mesopotamian period to the current day. But the genesis of the project uh, was my feeling that uh, in the period after the global financial crisis, interest rates were taken down to the lowest level levels in history in five millennia and a number of uh, unfortunate um, outcomes could be observed so I, I, I imagine that our works are, are complementary Edward why do we um, moralize money so much you're a financial historian um, you seem pretty hard-headed. Why does money make us so nervous in a moral sense? Why, for example, when it comes 
to the idea of interest. And many of us think, well, low interest rates are good because then people aren't profiting. Your argument, of course, is much more complicated. You suggest that low interest rates ultimately harm most of us. Well, a friend of mine read my book. Um, and after finishing it, he he made what, what I thought was a perceptive comment. He said, your book is really about social justice. And interest, the charging of interest, is always about the distribution of, of, of income and wealth. And um, at times, uh, a high interest, historically, high interest has been um, the source of all sorts of problems. Now, you referred earlier to a person you'd interviewed who was arguing for debt jubilees. Now, we have a history you know, of debt jubilees in the ancient world, in so Solon of Athens, in I think um, was in the fourth century BC, uh, uh, canceled the, the debts that were uh, that were owed on 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 land, and on the argument that that the debt was that interest was driving people into slavery. We have a history of debt jubilees uh, in ancient Israel, and we have a history of debt jubilees. In Mesopotamia, it was common for that to be debt to, to be the forgiveness of debt when a new ruler came to the throne. And the problem with interest back in in if you will in a sort of in in a primitive or an agricultural primarily agricultural uh, economy is that interest can compound at high rates and become unpayable. And uh, whether you you know if you look at the early writings about interest, whether it's um, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's, as I say, the, the, the Greek uh, Greek philosophers such as Aristotle and Plato, Plato were very critical of interest. And Aristotle famously said that the usurer was committing a crime by demanding more in money than he had given in the loan in the first place. But if you think of a um, a, a capitalistic society in which loans are being used for productive purposes, in which, say, for instance, you have some savings and I'm an entrepreneur who wants to take your savings so I have some profitable uh, purpose to do with it, um, then actually the charging of interest is, is not such a bad thing. In fact, there should be uh, an equality between what the person uh, receives, uh, what the profits person receives from borrowing money and the interest that a person that the creditor provides. So as you come into the modern period, I think that the the problems of the moral problems of interest can switch from the exploitative high interest to the problems potentially of very low interest. And that is um, it's not the whole point of my book, but the the two thirds, the second uh, two two thirds of the book look at the consequences of the low interest um, and 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 not least there's there the the inequality that has arisen in our highly financialized economy uh, from the very low interest and the asset price inflation and the difficulties of saving uh, for those who you know for those who who have have very little so so my argument is that that inequality 
in a mod in our modern world is actually fostered and, and increased by these uh, by, by the extraordinary low interests of recent years. Yeah, it's a morally counterintuitive argument, and it's a, it's a very provocative one, Edward. Uh, you've been compared; uh, the Economist compared you with Ben Bernanke. He's your intellectual actual man who literally wrote the check for QE in, in 2008. But I wonder whether your real intellectual foe might be David Graeber. His book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, covers similar sort of ground. He's writing morally, I think, politically from the left. I'm not suggesting that you're a conservative, but my sense is that your book, um, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, looks at money and debt quite differently from Graeber's, which was also a bestseller. I don't know. I assume you're familiar with Graeber's book. Yeah, I am. Actually, I, I, I footnote Graeber on, my, on the first page of, my, of the book, of the first chapter, um, because it's Graeber who makes the observation, which I think is correct, that um, the debt precedes money and precedes barter that you know there is this idea of the classical economists like adam smith that that um that the early early economic transactions were all about um about barter and then graeber says hang on say you know this doesn't make sense you look at things anthropologically we we see that there is credit and credit is given um and 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 what I argue, and I, d- I don't know where Graeber stands on this, is what I argue is that... that he doesn't that the, stand uh, anywhere anymore, Edward. He's no longer alive. No, I know he doesn't stand anymore. But I don't know where he stands in his book on the, you know, debt, the first yeah. 5,000 years. But he, so I, what I'm saying is I, I'm endorsing Graeber's view, but I'm saying that interest actually uh, accompanies the earliest credit transactions. And... In, and I also point out, and it's quite clear from the etymol from the early etymologies of interest in ancient languages that they're all related to um, to the to the offspring of of uh, to offspring of livestock, whether calves or cattle or or goats or sheep, um, and and so you can see embedded in the very earliest notion of interest is the idea of of, of loans being productive. Uh, And in that sense, um, you know, if one believes in a world, and perhaps this is the difference between, you know, uh, you know, a a political economy, if you believe in a world with where individuals have private property, if they are going to be separated from their private property, then it seems reasonable that they should uh, have and expect some charge uh, for the loan of their property over a period of time. Edward, um, in your history, your real history of interest, a very detailed, erudite history of, of interest in an economic term, can you separate this story in economic terms from the cultural and the political? It always seems to me, and again, excuse me if I'm wrong here, but many of the people and institutions that have profited from interest tend to be outsiders. So it's never simply an economic issue. It's also bound up in complicated um, cultural and political ones. I mean, one thinks, for example, of the Rothschilds and their uh, use of interest in in revolutionizing early capitalism. Uh, Let me rephrase the question. Why is it often that it's 
outsiders who benefit from interest, which only upsets and irritates settled peoples, agricultural communities, cities, and so on? Well, I think that I think that you're pointing to something slightly different from interest per se, um, namely that 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 the people the people who have uh, pioneered and dominated uh, banking and credit have often been outsiders, uh, whether they're in in Europe uh, and whether they were Jewish. Or if you go to uh, in in Britain, for instance, the Quakers were most of the large banks were founded by Quaker families. Or um, if you go to I India, uh, Farsis and and um, actually Afghans quite dominant in banking in India, and cops cops dominate bank, uh, finance in, in 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 Egypt. So all of these are outsider uh, communities, and I think my view is that. That the reason they dominate finance is that they have um, they have their own credit networks of people co-religionists um, mainly who who are with high uh, with high trust levels because credit is really about trust and I think you know if you look at the history of the Rothschilds with their centers in in um, in, in in France in 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 Vienna in in Germany and and in London. Um, that, that they they had a they had an extraordinarily good credit network. Now I don't think that that in itself is really to do with the having a good credit. You, you know, interest is charged on credit, yes, but I don't think to say that you benefit from if you know that any particular group benefits from 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 credit. No, I, I'm not saying I'm I'm certain I'd be no. the last person to say that. What I'm suggesting is that it's perceived that some people benefit. Yeah, and, and I think that's to do with credit credit networks and uh, dominates credit networks. And I, as I say, I think that's to do with high trust and good communication. So that you know, you have if you have a good network of people who can re report back on whether people are, are, are whether the borrower is likely to repay his uh, his debts, then you're going to be a better banker than you know someone who doesn't. I mean, the idea of low interest rates. Um superficially sounds very attractive you can borrow money basically as as you've suggested as you've warned indeed these days for free um it's a very democratic idea is there a particular in terms of your history is there a particular history of interest in the democratic age since say the middle of the 19th century well i mean let let me address the question of whether borrowing at low interest or, or even at no interest is democratic. I start the book uh, with a, in the introduction with a debate that takes place between uh, the French in the mid 19th century France between uh, the anarchist Proudhon and the sort of liberal economist and politician Frederick Bastia. And Proudhon at the time is arguing that there should be a central bank uh, that would lend money at zero rates of interest or close to zero, just at half a percent to cover its costs, and that gold money should be replaced by paper money, and that this would bring great equality and, and great a great boon to the working classes. And Bastia says this is just not 
so at all. First of all, he makes the argument that I've already been making to you, that the lender deserves some return on his savings. But then he goes on very perceptively to point out that if the rates were set close to zero, only the very rich would benefit from these very low rates. But if a poor man were to come, says Bastia, to the National Bank, they would say, show us your credit, show us your records. We won't lend you. It is not worth our wealth to lend you. And so Bastia argues that actually that, there's, that the that lending at zero rates of interest would actually harm the working man. It would lead to a misallocation of capital, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now I'm saying that, that the Bernankes of this world, the former chief of the Federal Reserve, they didn't realize it. Um, at the time, but what they were really doing after 2008 was actually uh, enacting Proudhon's vision and that Bastia's comment that the working man would be no better off, or working families would be no better off, was borne out because actually, as, as you probably know, what happened after the financial crisis is if you were a you know big private equity uh, baron like um, I don't know, Steve Schwartzman or, of, of Blackstone, you could borrow, yes, very cheaply at almost nothing. And you could buy, you could, as they did, you could buy up tens of thousands of, of foreclosed properties, or you could, or you could buy up companies and leverage them up to the hill and squeeze a massive profit out of it. But if you were a person with low credit, uh, stigmatized now as subprime, and you went to the bank, you were paying higher rates of interest after the financial crisis than you were before. And if you tried to go, you know, and if you tried to 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 buy a house, you found that yes, when the housing market recovered, the housing became unaffordable. And you found that all the things, mm. if you if you wanted to retire for and save for retirement, you found that the that your um, that that your, your money on deposit was yielding nothing. And as I point out, it's the people who are less well off who have to keep much more of their resources in cash than the super rich. The super the super rich after the financial crisis were giving their money to high net worth wealth managers who were just taking the cash and levering up the the, the US stock market three or four times and earning them 40%, 50% a year. Now, I mean, so you've got one person earning, earning you know, with returns of 40 or 50% per annum and another person, the poorest section of the community earning nothing. It's hard to see how these, you know, how the low rates of in interest actually help the common man. And there's another point I argue is that insofar as the low rates of interest contributed to economic sclerosis and the misallocation of capital and the collapse in productivity, they also actually lowered income growth. So again, you know, it, from, from the point of view, or, you know, that's why I say the book is really, if you look at it, about social justice, because, you know, the, there are certain people, the less well-off, the, the have-nots, who suffered most. Yeah, and you... You're rather generous, I think, to uh, Bernanke, Edward, suggesting he didn't know what he was doing. Certainly, I think um, Chris Leonard in his Lords of Easy Money suggests that maybe not Bernanke, but the people around Bernanke, his class, if you like, knew what they were doing. They were saving themselves uh, in this crisis. Um, so w what should we do now? I, I noticed um, an interesting piece in The Guardian, which tends to be left of center, 
suggesting inflation is causing real pain, but raising interest rates will make it worse. That's a classic response to this trade-off between inflation and interest rates. I'm assuming that you would disagree. You would suggest that actually higher interest rates are better in terms of social justice than inflation, or, or is that too simplistic? Um, well, I think at one stage when I'm writing about the uh, economist Claudio Borio, who works for the Bank for International Settlements, who's rather a hero of mine, he, Borio is sort of asked at one stage, you know, what what his um, what his solution to the problem is, and he 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 replies, you know, um, with the old joke of of a person asked for directions, saying, "I wouldn't start from here," and the and I think you know the, the thrust of my argument is that the era of low interest has led to uh, excess indebtedness, an over-financialized uh, economy, uh, inflated asset prices, whether stock market or, or real estate, a huge amount of, of, um, of embedded financial risk, um, and um, a, 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 um, an economy that, that is, you know, looks quite similar to what one might call a bubble economy, um, in which you know, many of the activities really are only supported by the sort of by the sort of bubble valuations and debt. And so, once you're in that situation, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to get out of it. I really don't think you you can't really get out of it, it with one of these so-called soft landings. In fact. The soft landings that we've had over the last 25 years, if, if you can call them that, you know, after the dot-com bust or, or after the, the, um, the global financial crisis, those were all engineered. And I'm sure you're, you know, um, this fellow who wrote the Lords of, uh, uh, you know, the Leonard fellow would agree, those were all engineered by the Federal Reserve, keeping int pushing interest rates down lower and lower. And then you know quantitative easing and so forth. And I think with inflation we sort of reach the end of of that process. So I think with inflation, uh, you know whether you like it or not, uh, interest rates have to rise because w if you keep interest rates at a zero and inflation inflation expectations start sort of soaring, then you you would sort of get a i think probably with that everything else being equal you'd get a collapse of, of the monetary system um so i think interest rates will rise i think that they won't rise you know so rapidly uh that they bring you know the idea would be to engineer a rise in them as all the central banks doing this year engineer a rise that is uh is way behind uh, the level of inflation. Edward, from where I'm sitting on the edge of Silicon Valley, uh, when it comes to central banks, some people believe there's an alternative with cryptocurrency. We've done many shows on crypto, the crypto promise, the crypto crash, the idea that the central bank can be replaced by a peer-to-peer -peer currency, which presumably would change the nature of interest. Certainly interest has been sold by crypto, uh, Alex Mashinsky, who was the or is the CEO of the crypto lending platform Celsius, now under investigation, may well end up in jail. Uh, used to famously wear a T-shirt, banks are, are not your friends and would offer investors or 
in in Celsius, 20, 30% interest. How does um, crypto fit in to your history? Is it a consequence of our age of easy money? Is it just uh, naive, utopian, financial utopians trying to imagine a world without central banks? How, How would you explain crypto in the context of your book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest? Um, well, I do. I write about, um, I, I have a chapter on, you know, on the bubbles created by the era of, of low interest. And, and I think that the cryptocurrencies, whatever their long-term promise, if there is any, whatever their long-term promise, they clearly have emerged as a highly speculative asset. I, I don't think anyone could deny that. Um, and if you think about what a crypto is, um, is it's, um, it's a zero coupon perpetual security. And a zero coupon perpetual security uh, has no income. And because it has no income, you can't sort of discount its cash flows back. And if you can't discount its cash flows back, it either has no value or potentially an infinite value. Um, and so I, I and I think that uh, you know you can clearly see uh, Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies that they that their price movements over the last decade or so have been a sort of barometer of of, of speculative uh, uh, euphoria. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, then the, yes, there are cryptos that are charging. That you know that there are these crypto um, cryptocurrencies with intermediaries that uh, where brokers where you can borrow and lend cryptos paying you know high rates of interest, and um, it lo- looks to me um, as if some of those are you know are and were just uh, Ponzi schemes. Um, so there's so but that doesn't preclude a possibility at some stage in the future of uh, a of a sort of a private currency a private digital currency or even a state current state backed currency so, you know as you know the the, the uh, um, a central bank digital digital currency the cbdc's that you have a possibility that these would um that that a uh, that a bona fide cryptocurrency or or a CBDC that was limited, strictly and legally limited in issuance, uh, that that could um, compete and dominate uh, and create a sort of network effect from its acceptance. And then, and if that happened, and and I end my book actually on that vision, if that happened, we would be rid of the world where fallible central bankers who simply uh, will never have either a full enough economic theory or a full enough knowledge or complete enough knowledge of the circumstances of, of an economy to set the the price of time, as I call it, the universal price, the most important price in the capitalist system. The, the central bankers will never have that correct knowledge. So in a way, the salvation could only come from that route. And that, that was the idea that that the Austrian economist uh, Friedrich 
Hayek wrote about in in his he wrote a pamphlet called uh, on private money where he he mooted the idea of of banks issuing their own private currencies and, and the ones that were most stable pushing everyone else uh, out sort of reverse Gresham's law the problem with that is that the state you know the state has a monopoly of violence but it also has a monopoly on the currency and it enjoys that monopoly and it's sort of uh, i'm afraid to say unlikely uh, to give up that monopoly without a fight edward um last week or the week before biden actually i think it was last week uh, biden signed the inflation reduction act you know how they came up with that term one of his marketing team should it be called the interest increase act would that be politically wiser do you think well, to reduce interest by by raising interest, to reduce well, inflation point by raising is half serious. I mean, you know, Inflation Reduction Act means Biden is suggesting that he's benefiting everyone because he's spending money to bring inflation down with this new act that costs however many trillions of dollars. But should interest be more politicized? I mean, that's what you're really suggesting in the book is it's misunderstood. And that if politicians were a bit more accountable and responsible, then it would benefit everybody. Well, I mean, so first of all, you know, the question of whether a government can actually reduce inflation by borrowing and spending, that, that you know, historically hasn't been the case. I wonder if you, have you ever had uh, the Stanford economist John Cochrane on your show? You know, he's, no, he, should I he, get him? Yeah, I think he's a very, very smart guy. I mean, you know, super smart. But he, his argument, he, he proposes a sort of fiscal theory of, of inflation, which is, you know, that that inflation, you know, when when, when a government borrows too much, the markets uh, and the markets lose confidence in the capacity of that of a government to pay back its debt at the current value. Then you'll get inflation into the system. So I don't I don't think Cochrane would be a sort of supporter of that as the question of um you know, of our interest rates political well there is as i say you know there, it's always going to be a question of distribution and what one um you know what one seeks for uh, in in a uh, just society is that the is that the questions of distribution are settled are settled equally and it's probably um, it's probably not a good idea that 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 the interest rates should be set should be um, handled. Uh, you know, the interest rate decisions should be solely taken by politicians because politicians have their own agenda. But what I'm also what I'm arguing is that you can't just hand the quest the problem over to technocrats to uh, central bankers uh, and you know, with their you know to, what. what um, a friend of mine, Jim Grant, calls the PhD standard as opposed to gold standard. You can't just hand it over to these... The Bernankes of the world, in other words. Exactly. The Bernankes, the archetypal figure, and expect them to come up with the right answer. So, I, 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 I mean, going back to what we were just talking about, ideally, just, just as you know, the prices of you know, whatever you buy, books, matches, beer, are set between are set in the market between freely between the between the um, you know the makers of beer and the consumers of beer. I think one you know one needs to move to a world in which this most important time, 
this most important price, which, which um, allows for human activities uh, to be coordinated across time. It's absolutely essential that, that your, your, your saving and your borrowing today um, should, should match your requirements in the future and that there shouldn't be some imbalance. It's absolutely essential that capital savings that are invested today should, should generate a decent return. If this price, if the price that determines this, the, the, these extraordinarily complex intertemporal transactions is corrupted, then the system fails. And I, I think that's, you know, frankly, what we've seen over the last, well, progressively over the last 25 years, but, but you know, more and more clearly during this era of so-called secular stagnation. So, so to go back to what we, you know, we we're just talking about is that ideally uh, the, the price of money, of the use of money over time should be determined in a market by, uh, by the lenders who are saving and by borrowers who are either using that per the money to invest or to, to or to spend for consumption in order to pay back later it's it's only if that price were set in a free market that it would sort of it would begin to reflect the the, the, the sort of millions of complex influences that would determine its price if that if that makes any sense yeah maybe edward you need to make your own t-shirt you should have uh, central banks are your friends but um like good friends, they tell you the truth. They don't always tell you what you want to hear. Finally, um, uh, another smart man, Jamie Dimon, warned today that something worse than the recession might be on the horizon. What's your sense, Edward, given your analysis of interest rates and your fear uh, of um, the real story of interest, that interest have been too low? What's your fear about the future? Have we have we seen the collapse yet or has the uh, has the other shoe not yet dropped well i mean look it, it, it's always difficult to, to make you know predictions about the future However, well, that goes without saying right? yeah 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 so i mean one gets these things wrong um but but as i say the thrust of my book is to point out the extraordinary uh, problems created by the low interest, whether it's the excess debt, the misallocation of capital, you know, low savings, bubbles, and, and that we haven't even inequality, talked about you know, generational inequality. Well, but about... actually getting, yeah, but getting rid of inequality, uh, I mean, that's generational way, inequality. Interject, no, but all I'm saying is that we've got ourselves into an immensely fragile position. And this is not just a problem for the US, not just a problem for Europe, but actually, you know, I have a section on China and the emerging markets. It's a sort of, it's a global phenomenon. And I think that, yeah, I don't think, you know, the recession, a recession, you know, defined as a sort of two quarters of shrinking GDP is neither here nor there. And I don't think, you know, the market, US stock market is down about 10% now year to date, having been down 20%. At, at, it, at its worst. I, I Look, it looks to me as if we're in the sort of the first innings of a protracted, uh, of a protracted, um, if you want to call it crisis, or you can just call it resolution <laughs> of our problems. So is I don't think... Uh, talk I, about first innings, Edward. Is this a cricket match or a baseball game? Oh, it's baseball, definitely. <laughs> so we've got nine no, I mean, innings. I think, I, so we still I, have another eight innings. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought, um, and I think inflation is part of the story. So, and, and if you think about it, you know, you know that just as we've had, you know, a long period of disinflation, it can, you know, it's hardly, it wouldn't be surprising, bearing in mind that inflation is highly cyclical, it wouldn't be surprising if, you know, for the rest of this decade, at least, that one would have sort of rolling period of inflation. And, and I, I, so I suppose that, that that's my sort of base case, rolling, rolling inflation with the sort of constant erosion of these extraordinarily inflated asset prices. And, and in the end, if you come back in 10 years time, we'll have less debt, less inequality, houses will be reasonably valued, the stock market will be reasonably valued, and you know, uh, and so the debt government debt will have been paid off with it. Uh, so it. Is there a historical moment that you can point to where we are repeating ourselves here? Yeah, I think I, I mean, look, there's no there's no instance that looks exactly like where we are today. But one potential parallel is is at least from the debt side, is where we were in the 1970s or the 60s and 70s, where interest rates were kept low because governments, US and British governments had large debts after the Second World War, and most of that debt was paid off. And this is here you go back to the debt jubilee. Nowadays, I mean, it's frankly, you know, impossible to instruct a debt jubilee. You know, it's, I mean, the, you know, it's, 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 the way we deal with debt jubilees today, and I don't know if, if this is what your previous interviewer said, but that definitely the way we deal with them is through high inflation. Look, you know, this, you know, in the UK, inflation is running at above 10% and interest rates are below 2%. So, you know, 8% of your principal of debt is being wiped out this year. Well, we're back to the 70s, maybe, Edward. We had uh, Helen Thompson, the Cambridge economist on the show, written a book about it, lots of other comparisons with the 70s, including comparing Trump and Nixon. So very interesting. Congratulations on this new book, um, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. Uh, what else are you reading, uh, Edward, these days? Anything else that's uh, on you? You've got a lot of books behind you in your home yeah. in Somerset. Yeah, yeah. So um, one book I liked, I don't know if you've come across this book, called The Economic Weapon by Nicholas Mulder, The Rise no, of Sanctions. Good? Yeah, I think it's excellent. I mean, it's it really looks at, I mean, I looked, I read it, I was writing a piece about the, you know, the sanctions uh, that were imposed on, on Russia. Yeah, you, uh, uh, you, you went the, against the grain here in your Reuters piece. It's a, it's a very interesting argument and it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't, I, I feel quite strong. I mean, but it, read, what's interesting about that book is that sanctions, it shows not only are sanctions um, sort of ineffective at achieving their political aim historically, but they've also been, um, and they, they're often kept in place for, you know, let's think of Cuba, they're kept in place for decades, uh, but they can also you know, cause, you know, cause humanitarian disasters. The first or I, I hadn't realized before reading this book that the, that the British and French sanctions on Germany and and the Ottoman Empire, Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire in the First World War killed in between six and eight hundred thousand people. Anyhow, so that's one book which I think is uh, interesting, and another book um, which I haven't quite yet read. Va Vaclav Smil, you, you're aware of Vaclav Smil. 
to yeah, smell. Yeah, I, I haven't read that book. So this is called How the World Really Works. Um, and that is, is his, uh, Smill is a sort of specialist on energy. His previous book, written a book on energy and civilization. And earlier this year, I read his book on, um, on energy transitions, which I think is absolutely essential reading because we sort of, we, we, have, we, we have decided to um, force ourselves onto an energy transition without really having the, um, the technology in place for this transition. And I think that's the point that, that Smill makes. And, and I think he, you know, he, he gives a, you know, his is not really, he's not really engaging the debate about sort of climate change or, you know, or modeling climate, blah, blah. He's actually just talking about the nitty gritty of what our civilization, of how energy creates our civilization and how, you know, the prosperity of the last 300 years has always come from moving to more and more efficient you know, uses of energy, getting more, more energy output for energy input. And I, now we seem to be, uh, you know, on the cusp. And I'm not, you know, the, so when I, I'm thinking about the two most important things to think about, in my view today, one is the book, you know, I've written on, on, on why I think, you know, the, the interest is such an important function. But I think, uh, you know, the, the other aspect is this energy transition, this, you know, that we're, we've embarked upon. And, you know, if we do things, you know, if we, you know, frankly, if we do things badly, you know, we will, <laughs> as Jamie Dimon would say, something much worse than a recession is around the corner.